Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys to Telepractice Across the Lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. As a reminder, if you are joining us for this live course and your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to complete all course modules, including the one that says quiz, before the end of the day today on your speechtherapypd.com account. We encourage questions from our participants. You can put your questions in the chat box for our guests to answer at the end of the episode. And here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Kareen Hartunian-Kukayon receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode. She serves as the head of telepractice and clinical standards at SLP Tele. She is serving on the SIG 18 coordinating committee for the 23-25 term. And now we welcome our guest today, Kareen hartunian Kukayon. Kareen has been a speech-language pathologist for over 20 years. She has worked across multiple settings, including schools, home health, outpatient clinics, early intervention, and private practice. She has served in leadership and supervisory roles within the special education arena. Kareen began working in telepractice focused in the educational setting back in 2010, when this modality was new and evidence of its effectiveness was limited. Currently, she serves as the head of telepractice and clinical standards at SLP Tele, a nationwide provider of online clinical-based speech services. Kareen is a passionate advocate for telehealth at the local, state, and federal levels. And as we said, she was recently elected to the SIG-18 Coordinating Committee for the upcoming term. Welcome, Kareen. We are so happy to have you on the 50th episode of Keys for SLPs to talk about keys to telepractice across the lifespan. Well, thank you for having me, Maribeth. I'm glad to be here. Well, so excited to have you here. So let's dive in. You have been working in telepractice a long time now. So tell us about your journey as an SLP and how you came to direct a program that specializes in telepractice. And I I have to admit, I did practice your name, but I want to make sure that I am pronouncing your company correctly. Is is that correct? Yeah, SLP Tele. We call it SLP Tele, but a lot of people will say SLP Tele, but gets the point across. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Because it's in all caps. So, okay. All right. So tell us about your journey. All right. So yeah, I became an SLP about a little over 20 years ago, and I basically was working in all the different settings. And I needed to take some time off of working to start my family. And telepractice was basically in its infancy at that time, but I began working for a company providing school-based speech pathology services online. And that pretty much shaved the path for my segue into telepractice. And about four years ago, I was ready for another change. And so this company was born out here in Southern California, Outpatient Clinic. The parent company that owns SLP Tele was just starting to experiment with telepractice. And so it is a clinician-owned company. A PT founded the company, husband and wife team. 
and the husband was is still the IT extraordinaire. So I was lucky enough to be hired and for the purposes of launching their speech program online. And it continues to be a really fun ride as we're growing and expanding nationally. And how many therapists do you have working? So currently we have over 100 and growing. <laughs> wow. Wow. And are they mostly full-time, part-time, PRN? How is that work? So we've got a good number that are full-time, and then we have mostly independent contractors that are part-time. So it's always nice to have a mix, and it helps people to kind of segue into this without necessarily giving up their day job. Excellent. So let's go back a little bit in 2010, tell us what some of your thoughts were and what some of, at that time, the thoughts of others about telepractice. Yeah, so telepractice, there was a, a lot of disbelief that it would work. There was a lot of concern that it was unethical. It was basically, you know, kind of a wild, wild west, so to speak, where we were trying to figure things out. And there was not a whole lot of evidence base. I mean, we're still continuing to add to it, but certainly the pandemic has helped with that. But back in 2010, a lot of people, including myself, didn't know that this was a thing that you could actually do the speech therapy over the computer and work from home. Interesting. And do you remember at that time what ASHA's stance was on it? Yeah. So ASHA did have a statement that went back to 2005 and they were backing it, you know, they had been backing it for five years at the time. And it's just that there weren't a lot of people that were practicing it. So again, the first kind of knee jerk reaction that people had was, is this really viable? Is this really ethical? But, you know, Asha was very clear that as long as it's as good as in person, that this is a viable modality for serving people through speech pathology. Very interesting. And now, of course, so many years later, it's a very common modality and was a positive product of the pandemic quarantine that you know most people are now familiar with telepractice. That's right. Yeah, you don't really get a lot of objection to its evidence because we now have a good 12 years of it and especially a good three years where it was commonplace. So anyway, okay, so what diagnoses and populations do you serve? So we see basically age-wise what I affectionately call womb to the tomb. Most of the clients we see start at somewhere around 18 months, but sometimes a little younger and up through geriatrics. And there is quite a diversity of diagnoses. So pretty much anywhere from your basic language delays or kids that come in with different, you know, maybe neurological issues, autism, some may be diagnosed, some may not be. So we're really helping the parents and the families kind of navigate through, you know, just finding specialists that could help them. And clearly, you know, they will have some complex cases that we are not the only ones that will be able to help them. And with our adults, there's quite a variety of adult acquired neurogenic disorders, anywhere from aphasia, traumatic head injury, some dysphagia. I would say anything that requires a lot of hands-on, we haven't been able to serve at this time just to make sure that, you know, there needs to be a speech pathologist there in person. But a lot of things, including dysphagia, we've been able to take that on as long as they have a video fluoroscopy and we're helping to treat them. Excellent. Now, your company is owned, as you said, by a PT. Do you ever have an opportunity to do any kind of co-treatments or team conferencing with the PTs? So we don't necessarily do the PT together. I think there's some insurance limitations, but we definitely, one thing that really works and helps our speech outcomes is working in collaboration with a behavioral therapist or an ABA provider. It really, it's night and day when we have that collaboration with those providers. And then on occasion, you know, whenever possible, working in conjunction with an OT, particularly again, the children that are on the spectrum when they have sensory and behavior issues. It just really helps them focus and make better speech outcomes. All right. So speaking of outcomes, sometimes we have better outcomes than others. Sometimes different people are, are particularly challenging to treat via teletherapy. So can you talk about the challenging diagnoses to treat through teletherapy, telepractice? Do you prefer teletherapy or telepractice, or do you find that those terms are interchangeable? 
I personally use them interchangeably. And I know there's some different schools of thought that go with that, but I definitely tend to use them interchangeably personally speaking. Okay. Good. <laughs> we can proceed. Yeah, no, no worries. So yeah, in terms of the challenging diagnoses and cases, so sometimes it has to do with the diagnoses. Other times it has to do with the attitude or the mindset of the family or the client coming in. Honestly, you know, even the most complex cases, I think if you have family or caregivers that are very open to receiving the help and just open to the help in general, open to learning and and whatnot, that attitude goes a long ways to helping make some gains. You know, there could be difficult situations, there could be difficult behaviors, there could be a multitude of things, but Having, you know, supportive and patient facilitators and family members certainly goes a long ways. In general, I would say the younger kiddos, the ones that typically don't sit and attend like a school-age child would to your typical telepractice session, the one, you know, the early days of telepractice, you know, we weren't even taking kids under seven because we wanted to make sure they were able to sit and attend. And of course, if they were enrolled in school by default, they should be able to sit and attend. Now that things have completely diversified, we see a lot of those younger children that it's developmentally not appropriate for them to sit and attend to a screen. In fact, we don't want them to necessarily do that. So that parent coaching component or caregiver coaching component comes into play for those younger children. And it all depends on the support of a family member or adult that's present. Sometimes those family members are fatigued and burnt out. And coming out of the pandemic, we have seen quite a few people that had poor experiences. Maybe those early remote learning sessions weren't so successful. And maybe even the clinician that was conducting those sessions wasn't so happy to be there. And so their first impression of telepractice is not a positive one. And so, you know, if we have family members in that category, then they tend to not be open to those sessions. But in terms of difficult populations, again, we do see a lot of underserved populations. They have limited resources. They may not have a lot of toys at home. So we're trying to do parent coaching and they don't have a lot of things. There's multi-generational families that are living in very small quarters. So there's challenges to that quiet space or dedicated time, but there's quite a bit that can be done. So we do work with them. We try to, you know, coach them with what they have, their whatever they have at home, whether it's, you know, food in their pantry or, you know, whatever, you know, toys, or if there are no toys, then you just work with whatever they have. Well, and if you think about it, since you want to introduce concepts of therapy into everyday life, if you have all these wonderful toys in your clinic, but those aren't at home, their generalization can be limited. So Teletherapy can be an advantage in that way because you are able to be in their home environment. Exactly. And just making those meal times very powerful times for therapeutic effect, as well as just anything that you can incorporate into their everyday routine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, what are the challenges of implementing evidence based practice treatment approaches in the outpatient clinical setting for pediatrics and geriatrics via teletherapy? So I like to refer to just the general research because, again, the standard of care for telepractice should be the same as face-to-face. So we're still continuing to grow that body of evidence. You know, we're further along than we were in 2010, but we probably have a long ways to go in terms of having a specific research that says, you know, whatever technique or whatever therapeutic strategy was effective indeed over telepractice. So I always like to refer to the general evidence map that ASHA has posted, as well as any of the research for what is being used through face-to-face. And then whenever possible, go ahead and, and try to implement that over telepractice. So again, we should be adding to that body of research, but also you know making sure that your standard of care is not being compromised if you were there in person. And now a lot of programs, therapeutic programs, have revised their training to accommodate telepractice. 
Yes, that is definitely the case. And I think that, again, the pandemic helped kind of expedite that or, you know, helped people see that there could be things that we do over telepractice that maybe they were resistant to. I know some of the ones that I've seen, I haven't been able to take all of these trainings myself, but Prompt has a telepractice version that they have opened up to people that are Prompt certified, as well as the HANN-IN program. Oh, that's interesting, because so much of Prompt is hands-on. Exactly. And I, I personally don't know too much about how they've accommodated it, but it's definitely something that is worth looking into. Excellent. Okay. What are some of the other barriers that you see? Yeah. So all those typical barriers that we have noted through the years still continue to be the case, transportation being one of them. So we have, you know, the transportation barrier in terms of some of our, I should back up actually, some of our in-clinic teletherapy stations. We've had trouble with people arriving to the clinic to take advantage of them. So we do set up these clinics as a way to give people options if they don't have technology or good technology, reliable technology in their home. And so you try to fix one problem, but then the other problem still exists. So they may have trouble with arriving to that location where they can access that technology. So there's some transportation issues still. There's also people that are still rushing to get home, you know, from school or work, you know, whether it be traffic, they're not just able to, although theoretically they could log on where they are, we wouldn't want them to log on in public. So, you know, there's still some transportation issues that pose problems. We're able to solve some of our language barriers, thankfully, through telepractice, because now we're able to connect our clients with people that speak the language so they can hopefully communicate with their therapist in their native language if needed, or family members. Spanish, again, is the the majority, the big language that we see a great need, not only in California, but across the nation. But there's so many different languages and so many people that come to us and a lot of diversity of different cultures. Another option, too, is trying to find a translator. And again, you can, you know, connect people over telepractice with an interpreter a little bit more readily. Again, you're not locked into that location that everybody has to be in that same location. And hospitals have used this for forever, you know, having an interpreter come in by a phone call or, you know, utilizing a system where they can call in the interpreter if needed. So there's all of those things that we can still continue to resolve through telepractice. So with the interpreter through with telepractice, who pays for that interpreter? If insurance is covering, will insurance cover it? Yeah, so we have tried to tap into the insurance as much as possible. And yes, most insurances, it's the easiest, least restrictive path is to go, go with what the insurance covers. Okay, and then if someone is private pay, are they needing to pay? for the interpreter in addition to the therapy? Yeah, we would work that out with them. Although I have to say a lot of folks that come, this is interesting correlation. I, I don't have any data on it, but a lot of people that come to us for private pay tend to have a family member that probably can interpret for them, which is interesting. Now, do you still find the hesitancy or lack of belief in teletherapy aside from people who encountered it during the pandemic. People new to therapy who didn't have therapy during the pandemic or brand new, do you find them hesitant to start with teletherapy or? Yeah, I feel like right now we're on the other side where people were just kind of thrown into it. And so the hesitancy or lack of belief goes back to what I mentioned a little bit earlier, where they had a negative experience because of remote learning, unfortunately. And so they're just what they call, you know, Zoom fatigue or burnout. They don't want their child to have anything remote. They want everything to be in person. And it's sort of they're kind of on one end of the extreme and they don't also want to be involved in that therapy, which is I think it's it's tragic because regardless if they're going to have an in-person therapist or not, they're still, you know, parents are the number one educator of their children and not being able to follow through with recommendations is only going to slow down the outcome of making progress. But 
there is a lot of burnout out there and a lot of people that just are wanting, you know, a quick fix and not have to do all the hard work that goes into speech therapy. Well, so do you always have a caregiver present during therapy with minors? Yes. So we definitely require that the adult be present. But as we've all learned, we also have to have that conversation with them as a clinician as to what their role is. So again, it goes back to just explaining how much more effective it is if they participate. We don't want them to just be in the same house, but to actually like be there next to the child and participate actively in the session and, and learn from us. Okay, so tell us about an ideal situation with a caregiver present and contrast that with one when the caregiver can actually be a barrier. Yeah, definitely. So I'll go ahead and start with an adult scenario. Both with adults and children, it's similar. You need a family member present, whether it's, you know, a spouse. In, In the adult case, it's usually a spouse or maybe an adult child that would want to be present. And an adult ideal case, we would want them to be supportive and how to be supportive. They want to listen and ask lots of questions and demonstrate follow through of our recommendations and certainly, you know, willing to assist if there's any tech issues. Again, setting aside that time, not just the first session, just because mom or grandpa was able to click on that link on day one doesn't mean that they'll be able to click on it on day two or day three. So just kind of helping without getting in the way would be an ideal scenario. Now, for an adult, not an ideal scenario, you have your family members that are inconsistent or they're nowhere to be found, and it's possible. We've had situations where an adult with aphasia gets very, very frustrated because they cannot connect, whether they don't know which button to click on the iPad and they just don't know how to get on with the therapist. And so maybe they're on the phone with the therapist and they're not able to actually like connect over, you know, the video conferencing. And then there's just a lot of emotions that get in the way. There's agitation, frustration, and the family, if they are or they happen to be there sometimes, Family members get frustrated with them and they don't like seeing their loved ones having hardships. So another thing is when they continue to speak for the client and not allow the client to process through those difficult moments, whether it's an emotion or not recalling the words, you know, family members can sometimes get in the way. (laughs) Yes. So do you have regular check-ins with the family members then like to discuss how it's going or only if there's a problem? Yeah, I think part of the, actually, we're going to probably cover that in a little bit, but one of the primary ways to build client engagement and to establish those relationships is to have what I think on a regular basis, probably a few minutes of each therapy session should be dedicated to kind of checking in on how the week was going and let the client sort of lead the charge in terms of where they think they're having difficulty and what they'd like to focus on. Of course, you want to still stick to your goals, but you know, it's good for them to feel that they're in control of the situation for sure and checking in. All right. So tell us about the ideal situation with a parent caregiver helping with telepractice. Yeah, so ideal case, we would want that parent to be there beyond time and ready to go. And we want to make sure that they would assist without taking over. Again, I as I'm saying this, it really makes me realize that it's very similar to if you're there in person and that parent is in that same room with you. How many times have we had those parents take over and start cueing their child without any mind to what you're trying to accomplish as the speech pathologist. And so as we know, you know, the cueing is very methodical and well thought out. And you've got that parent in there that just wants their child to not make mistakes and give the correct answer. And so ideal case would be that the parent really follows the therapist's lead and again, listens and follows the instructions and asks really good questions and and listens. And the not ideal parent would be either the parent who uses the screen time as a few minutes to go have some respite 
and also the parent that might get emotional and just not want to put any effort into the therapy session. So it's definitely, you know, not too different than what I've I've seen when we go into people's homes physically versus virtually. So in the situation where you don't have ideal caregiver participation, what else do you do to improve that situation? Yeah, and I actually think that for all therapy sessions, you don't want to wait until it becomes a problem. I think you need to assume from day one that you need to build those relationships and build that trust in order to ensure success. What we've seen is is working really well is when you do establish that relationship by, you know, taking the time to really listen to them and understand where they're coming from and working through some of those really difficult moments where they're like, I just don't think it's going to work. And, you know, you're going to sit there and, and talk to them about it, talk through it with them and see if you can bring them around to at least giving you a little bit of time to try to, to work through those difficulties. All right. So how about client engagement? That can also be a barrier. And sometimes it's harder to connect in the teletherapy modality. So what do you do to encourage client engagement in telepractice? Yeah, I am a firm believer in client engagement. And I think that, you know, even if you're making small little baby steps of progress towards those goals, that relationship can go so far to help the whole outcome of therapy be much more successful. So I did include this as part of the handout as well. And I really would like to encourage everyone to try to, you know, even add to this list. But here are some of the ones that I think have worked really well. I think, you know, it's been an eye opener for us to go into the homes of folks that are, you know, from more underserved populations and you know, different cultures and diversity really opens your mind to different outlooks on life. And there's really not one way of doing things. So it's important that when you do log in, that you understand that you are a guest in their home and don't, you know, start off on the wrong foot and be very judgmental. You need to do this. You need to do that. You know, why is this this way? So just take a moment to just kind of, you know, figure out what is, you know, the situation at home. And, you know, you'll have to probably bend to their their way to a point. You know, I know that there are certain things that, you know, people have brought up that may not be appropriate. But for the most part, you know, if somebody has a certain routine or a certain practice, we want to make sure that we're not going in there and have a judgmental attitude because that will definitely put your client and their family on the defense from day one. And in general, just being more patient and flexible with them. You can go in with the best lesson plans or the best idea. And the minute you log on, there is chaos. Their child is having a tantrum. You're not going to be able to use your lesson plan that day. So you have to really be willing to meet them halfway and maybe find out where they're at, meet them and bring them around to where you want them to be. And it may work, it may not work, but in essence, you may have to be talking to mom and consoling mom if if she's embarrassed by the situation. But again, having to do that and not be judgmental goes a long ways to helping build your relationships with your clients. And the check-in that we talked about a little bit earlier, I think it's so important to review goals with your clients regularly and may not need to be every single session, but to just do a check-in and see where they're at and have them understand why they're working on what they're working on and what do they want to accomplish in therapy. So you've got these goals written, measurable, smart goals, but what are they really looking to achieve? And most of the time it's that they want to be able to find the right words or they want to be able to communicate with loved ones. And during, you know, your therapy sessions, making sure that you explain to them why you're using a particular technique or why you're doing what you're doing. Because I remember early on from my days as a younger speech pathologist, you know, the parent was 
just thinking that all we do is blow bubbles. And we still hear that, you know, all they do is just play computer games. And so understanding why you're doing certain things and what you're trying to elicit, I think will go a long ways to building that relationship and help helping them to learn from you and how to implement those strategies outside the therapy session. Some other things that I, I try to encourage our clinicians to do is to, to be professional but approachable. You don't want to be so professional that you're not relating to them anymore as a human being. At the end of the day, we're still human beings and we want to make sure you are relating to them on that level. So, you know, that that takes time to kind of, I would say, kind of hone that skill, but it is something that's so important to building those relationships and including the family whenever it's appropriate, you know, sometimes even I guess when it's appropriate, the family cat or the family dog might be included at times. You just never know because you have people that come in and out of the room. I know it's definitely a balance when you want them to be in a quiet, dedicated space and be focused. But, you know, if little sister is really wanting to join in on the therapy sessions, see if you can still incorporate little sister while working on those goals and maybe give them some things that they could do outside of the session after you log off. So I think, you know, the again, the feelings of embarrassment that come up when folks are just, you know, exposing what they have in their home to you, the tantrums, that's the number one thing I can think of is a child's having a tantrum. Mom is really embarrassed because she feels like she can't control it. You know, as parents, I think we've all had those moments. But, you know, as, as the therapist, you want to just kind of stay positive and acknowledge and see if you can turn that into some kind of learning teachable moment so that they understand that they're not being judged. And hopefully they can take away something positive from that. And again, feedback on how they think they're doing. Do they think that it's helping them this time that you're spending with them? It's important to ask them how they feel about it and not just be the one leading the charge. And I think gratitude, thanking them for showing up and doing the hard work, it's hard work for them to to do the therapy. So acknowledging that you're thankful to them will go a long ways as well. That's such a good point. Absolutely. Okay, so you have had a lot of experience in different settings, and especially in the schools. So what do you see are the main differences between school-based and clinic-based speech pathology as it pertains to telepractice? We have a lot of listeners who work in schools, are school-based, and may be considering a move to telepractice. So I think this is an interesting question for those. Yeah, definitely. Well, the first and major difference is we don't have any IEPs. (laughs) So there are plans of care instead of IEPs that are certainly guidelines for what we follow, but none of that additional paperwork in terms of the actual IEP plan. And clinic-based funding source is completely different. So we personally have insurance and cash pay. Some clinics incorporate regional center, and I know in different parts of the country, there's different names for the early intervention programs. Our company currently takes insurance and cash, but not really working with regional center at this time. And basically, sometimes the payer does dictate or drive how you treat the client or patient in the sense that sometimes they have a limit a cap on how much therapy that they will allow. And certainly the type of wording that you want to put into all of your reports, anything coming from insurance or clinic-based, you need to make sure that there's a medical necessity component. So you're not going to be using your educational-based languages like grade-level vocabulary or curriculum-based storytelling we definitely don't want to incorporate any any goals that have any kind of educational language like that. They usually will be denied by insurance if we're audited. And another thing is that clinic-based tends to take place after school hours. The therapy that's school-based is usually the typical school day, right? Eight to two or eight to three. Clinic-based takes over where the school day ends. So you tend to work afternoons and evenings. And you definitely have more interaction with the parents, which I think, again, 
coming from the pandemic, a lot of therapists that did work with the school-based while the students were at home experienced this. But now that everybody, most everybody's returned back to school, typically telepractice in the schools, you're working in a brick and mortar environment in the school building, unless you're working with like a, an online or virtual school. But we, as clinic-based, we have traditionally worked with parents and families in their home. And that way we have more interaction with the family. And instead of working with school staff, you tend to just focus directly with the family. And again, the family members tend to have more say in what we do. I also wanted to mention on occasion we have connected with folks in other facilities like the daycare. If a parent really wants us to do that, we're able to do that as well. There's also group homes. There's different settings that we're able to set up in. But either way, the general default is usually in the home of the family. Thank you. So let's dive into some case studies. So being HIPAA compliant, of course, let's describe some general case studies and start with maybe we're talking about through the lifespan. So let's start with like a younger child. And then with the time we have left, we will move our way through adults and geriatrics. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Let me pull up my case studies. So first case study I have is a pretty common case, a preschool child around three years old with autism, understands and uses sign language mainly for total communication because they're nonverbal, mostly nonverbal. They will approximate some words such as more, please, water, milk, done, but they're also using the signs that go with those words. And this particular child or client is usually one that repeats what he hears. So there's a lot of echolalia and limited spontaneous conversation. There's a difficulty to sustain attention to tasks for longer than five minutes. Again, you've got your typical case where they're not really going to interact with you in the traditional way online. So how would we want this client treated over telepractice? Well, there's quite a bit that we can do. The plan of care for this particular client included improving functional communication skills, improving the ability to approximate one to two word approximations to request, label, comment, and respond, and also gradually increasing attention to familiar activity. And this is a case where, again, having a behavioral therapist or an ABA made a world of difference to improve outcomes. But again, a lot of it, therapy doesn't happen overnight. A lot of it is small baby steps. And so that patience and flexibility goes a long ways. And, you know, helping the family to be calm and focused during that process and to not expect a miracle overnight. Some therapy activities that were really helpful for this case, using natural toys or objects in the natural environment went a long ways to help with improving things such as following one-step directions and word approximations. Again, a child in this kind of profile probably wouldn't really pay too much attention to a digital image online. So There's absolutely nothing wrong with using those real objects and making sure that the parents also know how to reinforce that again outside of the therapy session. And a lot of parent coaching using that consultative model to teach the parents the techniques on how they can model and improve communication. And with this case, we outlined a period of less than two months. There was more intense therapy happening We were able to get them on a frequency of three times a week for 30 minutes, which was nice because I do see a lot of early intervention sessions that are an hour long. And after that 30 minute mark or 40 minute mark, it seems like the time is not as efficient. Both the parents are tired. The child is tired, but having the ability to log on three times a week for 30 minutes and using a portion of that time for parent training seemed to really go a long ways for this case. Pre-test, the child was 
at about three to five functional signs, independently at 75% accuracy. And post-test, client started to name four to six everyday items independently. Again, not completely perfectly, but they were approximating those words. So that was our first case study of our young child. Can I ask a question with that? So typically with a child that young, is he or she, are they looking directly at the screen at all during the session? Or is it more they're in their play-based therapy and the parent is looking directly at the screen? That is a great question. So typically they're not really looking at the screen. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why a lot of people don't think it works because this you know, child is not even looking at or connecting, quote unquote, connecting with a therapist. But what they are doing is connecting with their parent or whoever's in that environment. So the therapist takes on a completely different role. They're more like the voice from the computer guiding the parent rather than actually the one directly interacting with the child. Now, there are times that we start off with that parent coaching model and then Gradually, the child does start to interact with a therapist online. But, you know, there's nothing, really no evidence that says that they have to interact with the therapist directly in order to make progress on goals. A lot of evidence and a lot of research is pointing to how much more can be accomplished with that parent. And the therapist gives them the strategies and the the adjustments that they need to make in that moment. It's really powerful. Mm -hmm. And those can be used throughout the day and evening, not just during the therapy session. So absolutely. All right. Well, that was an excellent case study. Let's move on to a child who's a little bit older. Yeah. So the, the next one I have here is one that might be a little more common to all of us. So we have a seven year old girl with an articulation delay. Mom reports that she doesn't understand what her daughter says 50% of the time when the context isn't known. Mom was reporting that, you know, her daughter would be talking to her after she picked her up from school and she couldn't understand half of what she was saying. So she's again, she's not directly looking at her daughter. She's driving in the car and just can't seem to really keep up on what her daughter was saying. Either way, it was creating a lot of frustration for them at home. And she did have some single words that were being mispronounced as well as some idiosyncratic phrases. She wasn't severe enough for school-based speech services because of the different qualifications that schools have. In addition, in the schools, you have to, it has to affect your academics. But we were able to qualify her for clinic-based speech and help her because it was creating an issue with her everyday functioning. And it seems like she had never gotten treatment in the school. So she'd never been low enough to qualify. And so she made it up to age seven and still was having a hard time with this. So her plan of care was pretty straightforward. It was to improve her articulation and spontaneous speech and be able to maybe work on increasing her utterance length and just have more coherent sentences so she could communicate her everyday experiences. And again, a very typical plan of care, the activities, she was one that would sit and attend to the therapist. So having the interactive online games was a really good choice for her, as well as anything that you could use, typical whiteboard activities or anything that required talking about picture scenes. But She made tremendous progress in a short amount of time. So in a three-month period of time, again, at a a twice-a-week, 30-minute frequency and duration, she was able to go from her pre-test. So she needed to be able to do all of these things without cueing, and she was able to get up to, from single words, so let me rephrase. So she had started off, only using single words because she was so embarrassed that she would make mistakes. And eventually at the end of the three-month period, she was able to form seven-word sentences with very minimal cues and be able to basically speak in, you know, understandable, intelligible sentences without mom didn't have to ask her to continually repeat herself, basically. 
at the end of that period. Well, that is significant progress. And so did she have, did therapy end at the end of three months or was that just the reported time for the case study? It was just the reported case for how fast she made progress. And from there, what we would usually do, I don't have the notes in front of me, is we would move her down to once a week and probably move her to discharge pretty quickly. Another option for her would be to go into a a group of two to do like a group session for like maybe a few more weeks with a peer and then be discharged after that. We give them that option as well. And does insurance cover for groups or Um, is that? It does depend on the insurance company, but yes, they do. Okay. That's interesting. Is the insurance in that case with a group of two, is the insurance paying 50% of what they would have paid if it were one-on-one? That's a good question. I'm actually not 100% sure. I think it depends again on the insurance and the way the contract's written. I think that certain insurances have that, like if it's a group, it's a different rate. And then if it's individual, it's a different rate, if I recall correctly. Okay, excellent. Well, you could see that that three months of therapy really affected her social and emotional development if she was only speaking in one word utterances at seven. Definitely. Yeah, there was a lot of of impact to her social emotional well-being by her not being able to feel confident enough to speak for herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, good work. Okay. What's next? So next I'm going to move up the lifespan to a, an adult male who is post-stroke. So I have a 55 year old male who had a stroke. His job prior to the stroke was an Uber driver. So he was you know, basically working, very independent. What happened is that he did have a stroke that left him incapable of driving. In addition to that, he now had word finding issues. He also had difficulty understanding what people said to him and difficulty understanding what he read. Very typical profile or case profile for somebody who has aphasia. He was able to speak. It's just, you know, life was definitely different post-stroke. And another common feature was that he had trouble with multisyllabic words. And he really just wanted to be more independent. He wanted to be able to do things for himself. Since he wasn't driving, he was able to take walks and he would walk to local places where he could try to socialize. There was a pizza place he would walk to. He also was able to take the bus So we tried to use all of those things in his therapy. So the plan of care included, of course, improving his word finding skills by giving him, you know, some strategies and using a cueing hierarchy. A lot of tactile types of cues like tapping helped him with his multisyllabic words and reading and answering questions about articles that he read. So he was not someone who read a ton of books, but He loved, let's say, the Dodgers. So like he wanted to read those articles about what happened to the Dodgers and talk about it. And it was highly motivating for him. So using telepractice, we were able to go into his home and basically help him with those naming activities with those items that were actually in his home. So he would come to therapy and say, you know, I just can't seem to say the word dishwasher. So we we could move therapy to his kitchen and Name all those different appliances that have multiple syllables that he was having trouble, you know, with during conversation. And we would read the articles. And another thing that was very helpful was pulling up maps to where he was going to. So, you know, he would want to invite friends to meet him at the pizza place so he could practice. How do I give directions on where they need to go? I mean, with people using GPS system, probably they could figure it out on their own, but he he you know had an activity that he could do in a, a way to communicate with his friends that gave him more independence. So he was able to to give those directions. We could work on that online. Another common one was filling out doctor's forms. He had a family member that would always do that, so we could practice doing that in session through screen share and through a whiteboard. And another one he would want to practice was to order his own items off of the menu. So again, lots of online menus that we shared, 
of his favorite restaurants and practicing ordering for himself. So gave him a lot of confidence in that area. And the timeline for this one was five months, although I know he was in therapy longer than that with us. But in a five-month period at pretest, he was at about 40% accuracy with no cues. But post-test, he was able to increase to about 80% accuracy with self-cueing. Something really important to note with him was that he finally started to use those tapping, self-cueing, and all those different things on his own, which made a big difference. And towards the end of, of therapy, he no longer needed those reminders, and he was able to gesture and cue himself on his own. Excellent. And do you recall how long post-stroke he was? At the time of discharge? Oh, or at the time he started therapy. Oh, I see. I believe it was about six months after his stroke that he finally started. And one thing I remember about this case was that the family did not want to do telepractice for that same reason why I think most of those adults, they just don't think that the technology is going to be helpful. They just want it in, in person. But one thing that, you know, he was by himself at home, so he learned how to turn on the iPad and he was ready to go. He actually didn't need much help at all when it came to the technology, once it was set up for him, that is. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the teletherapy really helped his independence, whereas he didn't need anyone to take him to therapy. Or exactly. If he needed to rely on that transportation, he wouldn't have been able to get the therapy for as long as he did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or he sure. would have taken the bus and spent a better part of the day getting to and from therapy. Exactly. So, all right, well, let us look at our time. Okay, so for those who are listening live, we are just a couple minutes away from our 60-minute mark. So you may, if you need to go, you can go, but we have a few more case studies that we're going to discuss. So if you are listening live and you do have to go, I just want to remind you that if your state license requires live CEUs, be sure to go to the, the speechtherapypd.com before the end of the day today and complete all the course modules, including the one that says quiz. All right. Okay. Well, let's go back to our case studies. Okay, so the next case study I have, it's another adult. So we actually had an adult that had some cluttering. And since cluttering is not a very common diagnosis, I thought this would be an interesting one to share. So we have a 41-year-old adult who does live with their mother and the mother's significant other. The cluttering is not their only disability. They also have a diagnosis of Rett syndrome and multiple sclerosis. So very complex case here, and they do speak Spanish and English. So in addition to all the things that were the result of the cluttering, they also had some dysphagia, issues with auditory processing, and word-finding difficulties. So with this particular case... The goals or the plan of care were focused on compensatory strategies. Again, with all of our older, young adults and then adults, we want to focus on, on strategies rather than figuring out a way to improve their skills because they're probably going to have to rely on cueing themselves at, to a point. So compensatory strategies to improve intelligibility, a lot of pausing and phrasing, and then they also worked on some improving of word retrieval during structured activities, as well as improving their reasoning abilities, verbal reasoning abilities. And a lot of the activities, again, we tried to keep it functional. First was increasing their awareness to when they were having cluttered speech. Again, if they lack awareness of when the breakdown's happening, it's going to be hard to correct it. Calling different stores and restaurants. I know texting is a big thing, but having those phone calls really helped during therapy to improve their fluency. And then having a self-rating system to, to see if their awareness and their improvement of, of their cluttering is, is on target or not. So a rating scale is really effective for that. This particular client, the timeline we have for uh, pre-test, post-test was about nine months twice a week for 30 minutes. And there were two different 
pretests that we did, articulation was severely impaired at 50% intelligible before. And at the end of the nine-month period, there was fluency shaping strategies and minimal cues being applied. And I believe the awareness level or self-rating had gone up to more like 70%, that they felt like they were 70% intelligible at the end. And verbal reasoning tasks also already at the beginning, they were about 20% accuracy and they were able to improve to 55% accuracy. Again, with cues, not without, but with maximum cues, I think at some point they were even 100% accurate. So that was the next case study. All right. So we have a few other case studies. All right. So yeah, a couple of other ones. Next one I have is an adult that's receiving some transgender voice training. They were a 22-year-old adult living with friends. They were a trans woman and a high voice user, so somebody that had to use their voice constantly. So the goal was the feminization of their voice. However, it was creating quite a bit of vocal strain and hoarseness. And there was a high level of anxiety related to the usage of their voice because they didn't feel that their voice was optimal for where they needed to be in their transition. So one of the things to note with this client was that they originally had their evaluation and they didn't move forward with with treatment. So this becomes kind of a, a typical case in the sense that you have to really build a lot of trust with this type of, of therapy, making sure that they really know that you are supportive of them and will help them. That lack of, of trust can just really hurt the therapeutic relationship. Luckily, this person did come back and resume therapy. So the goals were focused on increasing basically the pitch through typical techniques and exercises such as resonant voice and flow phonation. There was a lot of client education given on the process of vocal production, improving vocal quality and endurance of the voice so that they could sustain. And again, education on vocal hygiene and different exercises to reduce the actual tension and reduce, you know, anxiety as a result. And it was very typical in the sense that therapeutic exercises were implemented for vocal function. First starting off with structured tasks and then moving on to spontaneous conversation. And a self-rating of voice was implemented to just kind of keep track of that data and making sure they were making progress towards their goals. And interesting to note at pretest, we did Record for a period of two months. The client continues to be in therapy right now. But generally, I believe for transgender voice training, it is somewhere between two to three months that treatment takes place. And then it's kind of up to them to continue to practice and, and maintain. However, the pretest for this client was the average pitch was at 136 hertz keeping in mind that the adult female is somewhere between 165 to 255 hertz. So there was some work to do. And in a matter of, again, the eight-week period, toward, you know, seven to eight-week period, they had made improvements and they were at an average of 166 hertz. So just crossing over into the realm of, of what we perceive as being more of a feminine voice, but probably some more work to do to just continue to maintain that. And this individual is pretty close to discharge. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing the case studies. We are just about out of time, but the good news is, I know you have a few more case studies to share. The good news is you are going to be hosting an upcoming series on telepractice and going through some different diagnoses and therapy via telepractice. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we are going to be launching this series hopefully in the next several months, and it will cover all kinds of different topics, including adult accent modification, as well as using an interpreter through telepractice and other topics to come. 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, Corrine, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was great to have you. It's been fun to work with you. And this was especially exciting because this was our 50th episode, as we said at the beginning. So I also want to thank Yumi, who's behind the scenes at SpeechTherapyPD.com. And of course, Darla, the owner, who has allowed us to get to 50 episodes. And I look forward to the next 50. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a great evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.